Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, Hunting the Deceitful Turkey by Mark Twain. I believe we found out that this was published in the first uh, the December uh, 1906 issue of Harper's. Probably Harper's, Harper's Monthly. Monthly, yes. That would make more sense than the first issue of the month, um, which is where I guess I was looking for it. Um Hunting the Deceitful Turkey. I saw this story title and I said, I have to read this story because that is just so Mark Twain, right? In the title there. And uh, yeah. if you don't mind, I will read the story for us. Love to hear it again. Please go ahead. All right, here we go. Hunting the Deceitful Turkey by Mark Twain. When I was a boy, my uncle and his big boys hunted with a rifle. The youngest boy, Fred, and I with a shotgun. A small single-barreled shotgun which was properly suited to our size and strength. It was not much heavier than a broom. We carried it in turn about half an hour at a time. I was not able to hit anything with it, but I liked to try. Fred and I hunted feathered small game. The others hunted deer, squirrels, wild turkeys, and such things. My uncle and the big boys were good shots. They killed hawks and wild geese and sound and such like on the wing, and they didn't wound or kill squirrels. They stunned them. When the boys treed a squirrel, the squirrel would scamper aloft and run out on a limb and flatten himself along it, hoping to make himself invisible in the way, in that way, and not quite succeeding. You could see his wee little ears sticking up. You couldn't see his nose, but you knew where it was. Then the hunter, despising a rest for his rifle, stood up and took offhand aim at the limb and sent a bullet into it, immediately under the squirrel's nose, and down tumbled the animal, unwounded but unconscious. The dogs gave him a shake and he was dead. Sometimes when the distance was great, the wind not accurately allowed for, the bullet would hit the squirrel's head. The dogs could do as they pleased with that one. They, the hunter's pride was hurt and he wouldn't allow it to go into the game bag. In the first faint gray of the dawn, the stately wild turkeys would be stalking around in great flocks, ready to be sociable and answer invitations to come and converse with other excursionists of their kind. The hunter concealed himself and imitated the turkey call by sucking the air through the leg bone of a turkey which had previously answered a call like that and lived only just long enough to regret it. There is nothing that furnishes a perfect turkey call except that bone. Another of nature's treacheries, you see. She is full of them. Half the time she doesn't know which she likes best, to betray her child or protect it. In the case of the turkey, she is badly mixed. She gives it a bone to be used in getting it into trouble, and she also furnishes it with a trick for getting itself out of the trouble again. When a mama turkey answers an invitation and finds she has made a mistake in accepting it, she does as the mama partridge does remembers a previous engagement and goes limping and scrambling away, pretending to be very lame. And at the same time, she is saying to her not visible children, lie low, keep still, don't expose yourselves. I shall be back as soon as I have beguiled this shabby swindler out of the country. When a person is ignorant and confiding, this immoral device can have tiresome results. 
I followed an ostensibly lame turkey over a considerable part of the United States one morning. Because I believed in her, I could not think she would deceive a mere boy, and one who was trusting and considering her honest. I had the single-barreled shotgun, but my idea was to catch her alive. I often got within rushing distance of her, and then made my rushes, but always just as I made my final plunge and put my hand down where her back had been, it wasn't there. It was only two or three inches from there, and I brushed the tail feathers as I landed on my stomach. A very close call, but still not quite close enough. That is, not close enough for success, but just close enough to convince me that I could do it next time. She always waited for me, a little piece away, and let on to be resting and greatly fatigued, which was a lie. But I believed it, for I still thought her honest, long after I ought to have begun to doubt her, suspecting that this was no way for a high-minded bird to be acting. I followed and followed and followed, making my periodical rushes and getting up and brushing the dust off and resuming the voyage with patient confidence. Indeed, with a confidence which grew, for I could see by the change of climate and vegetation that we were getting up into the higher latitudes. And, as she always looked at a little tireder and tireder and with a little more discouraged after each rush, I judged that I was safe to win in the end. The competition being purely a matter of staying power and the advantage of lying with me from the start because she was lame. Along in the afternoon, I began to feel fatigued myself. Neither of us had any rest since we first started on the excursion, which was upward of 10 hours before, though laterally we had paused a while after rushes. I letting on to be thinking about something else, but neither of us sincere and both of us waiting for the other to call game, but in no real hurry about it. For indeed, those little evanescent snatches of rest were very grateful to the feelings of us both. It would naturally be so, skirmishing along like that ever since dawn, and not a bite in the meantime, at least for me, though sometimes as she lay on her side fanning herself with a wing and praying for strength to get out of this difficulty, a grasshopper happened along whose time had come, and that was well for her, and fortunate, but I had nothing, nothing the whole day. More than once, after I was very tired, I gave up taking her alive and was going to shoot her, but I never did it, although it was my right, for I did not believe I could hit her, and besides, she always stopped and posed when I raised the gun, and this made me suspicious that she knew about me and my marksmanship, and so I did not care to expose myself to remarks. I did not get her at all. When she got tired of the game at last, she rose from almost under my hand and flew aloft with the rush of, and whir of a shell and lit in the highest limb of a great tree and sat down and crossed her legs and smiled down at me and seemed gratified to see me so astonished. I was ashamed and, lo and also lost, and it was while I was wandering in the woods hunting for myself that I found a deserted log cabin and had one of the best meals there in my life days I have eaten. The weed-grown garden was full of ripe tomatoes, and I ate them ravenously though I had never liked them before. Not more than two or three times since have I tasted anything that was so delicious as those tomatoes. I surfeited myself with them, and did not taste another one until I was in middle life. I can eat them now, but I do not like the look of them. I suppose we all have experienced a surfeit at one time or another. Once in stress of circumstances I ate part of a barrel of sardines, 
there being nothing else at hand. But since then, I have always been able to get along without sardines. <laughs> it's hard to not laugh while you're reading it. Um, <laughs> I loved the way you were reading the Mama Turkey's voice. Yeah, me too. I enjoy I enjoy doing his characters. Oh my God. Um, I also drew a little picture of uh, the Mama Turkey being smiling, which I, I, and just the funniest line is she's smiling down it. I didn't know turkeys could smile. Apparently they can. Um, and that's really what I like about Mark Twain. I think is, is that he puts a spin on things where he's winking at the reader, he's winking at reality, and and we know exactly what why he's winking. It's so good. I love it. I love the way Mark Twain writes. This is not a fiction story, as far as I know. This is his retelling of a true event in his own life. It, it may well be, um, but but some parts of it clearly are not true, like the smiling percent. Yeah. No, it's. Right? I, I believe he has uncles. I believe, or he had an uncle and some, and he's probably a bad shot and all that stuff. But. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, 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 the story does not end with a discussion of turkeys at all. The story That's is right. they called the hunting of the deceitful turkey, but the story is clearly not about the turkey. No. The story is about the boy and the boy as he stands for the innocence uh, that might be considered um, a virtue in humanity. It seems to me yep. it's a true story, I guess. But, you know, she she uh, takes off right when she's tired of the game, although she is the game. Yep. Right. A game bird with the rush and whir of a shell. Yep. She's the only creature in this story who actually has live ammunition. That's right. Right. Although she doesn't hurt the boy. And she lit on the highest limb of a great tree and sat down and crossed her legs, which is impossible, right? A bird cannot cross its legs if it's hanging, if it's on the limb of a tree. It has to actually use its feet to hang on to the tree. The, the way the muscles are made, I remember studying this in comparative anatomy in college, the way the muscles work in birds, they have to sit, sit a certain way or they could not sleep on tree limbs. They can't cross their legs. And I'm sure that uh, someone who has actually gone hunting in his youth would know that. Uh, the whole story, I think, hinges on the notion of game. Um, the uncles and the older boys take pride in the way they can kill. Mm -hmm. They're not hunting for food. In fact, if they get a squirrel and they don't kill it properly, they don't put it into the game bag. They let the dogs eat it. They are out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a byproduct, they'll get some food. But the reality is they're showing off for each other. And I think that it's uh, it's psychologically useful that our our narrator, little little Sam, Right, Samuel Clemens, mm -hmm. of course, think of this as autobiographical. Little Sam is out there with his uncle and the big boys. Um, and then he's got his cousin, Fred. And neither he nor Fred have any success here. And by the time we go after the deceitful turkey, as far as I can tell, Fred is long gone. Yep. So this is not a father passing on a set of values to the son. 
it's the uncle. So that in rejecting the uncle's viewpoint, Sam is not rejecting his father's viewpoint, right? There's an important separation. Yes, this is my family. Yes, this is the way our culture works. But but I'm not doing anything wrong by taking a different view. And he does take a different view because he doesn't want and he, too, has this idea of making the game be one in which he can show off his skill. Mm-hmm. But there are two crucial things. One, his idea isn't to stun the bird and then let it be killed. His idea is to take it alive. Right. It's going to stay alive after he catches it. And the second is. He's a failure, and instead of trying to let his failures be destroyed by the dogs, he writes a story about it. Yep. So in a way, I think what he's doing is criticizing um, people who have this playful idea that life is something that can just be taken. The personification of the turkey, it's not just a turkey. It's a mama turkey. Mm-hmm. And she's willing to sacrifice herself for her own babies. I mean, this is a story in which the noble savage is much nobler than those who come out with guns. <laughs> and when I read this, I thought, especially when we got to the, the ending, which is about human appetite. Yep. Best thing of all is vegetable. Right. It's those tomatoes. Right. And the tomatoes. Yes, there's such a thing as surfeit. But then. Years later, by golly, I can I can eat tomatoes again. I can enjoy them, although they're never as good as the first ones. He had the same experience with sardines, but we're not told that he ever eats sardines again. Right. So the story is all done. What we find is that this this fellow who is willing to expose his own um, patient confidence, that is, he is acted upon. He's the patient and he has faith. Right. He has confidence. Um, This fellow who who has patient confidence, he's willing to be shown up to have been fooled again and again by a mama turkey. And then, by golly, he goes to a place that humanity has given up. Mm. Right. Abandoned cabin. And in the place where humanity has given up, he has the best meal of his life. Not the apple of the Garden of Eden, but a big red fruit that you can eat. And not fall into sin. So I read this and I thought, my God, this sounds like he's a vegetarian. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? So I looked it up. Everything that I can find on the Internet says that, in fact, Twain was a vegetarian. Hmm. And fits the story. the the underlying morality here is is what I, I it just blew my mind, as you know, um, I am a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. So it never occurred to me as I read this the first time that this was uh, a story that sort of was ideologically aligned with me. But and maybe that's not, you know, maybe I'm overreading it. Jesse. No, I don't think you are. I, I, but I think that it comes from his position as as the person he was. Right. He he is full of sympathy for people and that sympathy extends beyond people. And he starts putting words into the mind of this turkey, right? Or into the into the gobbles of this turkey. Um, it is not a vegetarian. It, it, it eats uh, the insects that it comes across. Um, but the way he, right, lie low, 
says the turkey to its its progeny, keep still, don't expose yourselves. I shall be back as soon as I have beguiled this shabby swindler. Right. So he's describing uh, Twain's describing himself as a shabby twin uh, swindler. Yes. And that's and he has this dignity that he's like, no, I established the rules of this game. I'm not going to shoot you. I might threaten to shoot you so that you hold still for me and I come running at you and catch you the proper way, but I'm not going. It's, um, yeah, the fact that he says, uh, I, and I said that he, he's a bad shot, it's, sub, it's subject to, it's subject to um, revision in the sense that um, there might be a reason he's a bad shot. He doesn't want to kill. And and yeah. that is the reason. It's not you know. It's it's better for your health. It's more mm-hmm. like, um, really, I I am forced to kill these things. And the way that you rightly point out the how the big boys who are nameless do uh, their killing is that it is a game. It is a game of right. They won't put anything in the quote unquote game bag unless it gets um, it is properly gotten. But their way of properly getting things is to play a game where I'm getting this one and you're getting that one. And if you're going to kill the squirrel, you have to stun the squirrel and then it counts. But if you actually kill the squirrel, then then that doesn't count. Um, and I think we all make up rules like this. When I was reading this story with my students uh, yesterday, I was saying we all sort of have rules as to and we should um, how we play games, right, that I won't. When you're playing Monopoly and you're a little kid and you don't have enough money and you're going to cry when you lose the game, uh, you might try and steal money from the bank, right? <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's how you do it. But as an adult and you've got some dignity and you've, you've thought about things, you, you might want to set some own rules. I'm not just going to follow the rules because I want to avoid punishment, but I want to follow some rules because it it gives me a way of not feeling bad about my own behavior in the world. And so what's so great about this this Twain story is that it's so Twain. He says, you know, the deceitful turkey. When he comes back from this turkey hunt and his, his cousin Fred and the big boys and his uncle are standing around, um, he, he, they say, look, dude, you had a shotgun. It's not very hard. To, and one of my students pointed this out. Shotguns, they, they're easy to hit things with, especially like so my students are trying to f- figure out why. Is the shotgun like really short, so he can't aim very well? Like, <laughs> whole point is that he doesn't want to use the shotgun. Um, he doesn't really want to kill the bird at all. And so the fact that you know he comes back and can say to his uncles, "Yes, the dece- deceitful turkey. It deceived me. You can't trust turkeys, right?" That's his way of dealing with the fact that yeah, he's not a man in the sense that they are willing to kill everything under the sun. I, I think it's just brilliant. He's he's so funny. I agree. Um, absolutely. I, I, I love his use of different rhetorical devices. The personification of the turkey is superb. Um, his his uh, hyperbole is just, you know, is, is wonderful. Um, um, the, he followed the ostensibly lame turkey over a considerable part of the United <laughs> States one morning. Right. I'm, I'm sure that's how it felt, Sam. Yep. <laughs> to, just to, to make it clear to your to your students, um, it's not hard to hit something with a shotgun because the cartridge of a shotgun is full of many, many, many pieces of shot. Mm-hmm. Little, little, so that when 
Um, when the shotgun blasts, when you know the hammer hits the end of the cartridge and the powder at the bottom of the cartridge explodes, it propels the shot outward. The shorter the barrel, the wider the spray. Right. The longer the barrel, the more it's confined to uh, a single path. Uh, so a small single barrel shotgun might look like a miniature rifle. But in fact, a rifle has a single bullet coming out of it, and either you hit with that one projectile or you miss. Whereas with a shotgun, especially a small one, because with a smaller barrel, it has a wider spray, outcome all of these different things. And of course, birdshot is exactly what you load into uh, uh, the cartridge of a shotgun if what you're going for is something with comparatively thin skin, like, like small fowl. If you're looking for deer, then you're going to need a really big shotgun if you're going to use a shotgun, but you're probably going to want to use a rifle because you don't want to pepper the body and fill it with little pieces of shot. That's right. Yeah. So it, it, there is a real class distinction here. The boys, the, the bigger boys and the uncle can play the game. Fred and our narrator can't. It would be impossible to stun an animal in the way that the uncle and the older boys do with a shotgun. They're simply not being allowed to play the game. They're, the presumption is you're coming along to get used to the camaraderie. When you are big enough, then we will let you play the game. But he doesn't want to play the game. I think he learns that yeah. from uh, – his long day with the, the mama turkey. And it's a mama turkey. He gets it. She I, matters to him. I, I like that he also, he says, uh, and the only description of the shotgun, you know, single barrel shotgun, is that he compares it to a broom, right? About Yes. Uh, and that makes me think of the way Twain sort of just, he always twists things so that, <laughs> he, what is Tom Sawyer? It's the story of Tom Sawyer who uh, con convinces his friends to that painting the fence is a good idea, right? Right. Um, it's the, the greatest thing ever. You get to whitewash this fence. Oh, can I give it a try, Tom? It's like, <laughs> yes, you can. And I believe that in that case, um, it was his aunt's fence as well, right? You get the sense yes. that. Um, this is a boy who is living with relatives, at least sometimes, when they have certain ideas and he has his own ideas. And they, when they don't line up, he finds a way to make it, right? So uh, instead of, you know, coming back and saying, I, uh, I, I killed the turkey and I ate it, and instead of lying, he, he sort of just puts a spin on it, right? And then yeah. that, fi that final ending with the, with the tomatoes and the... And the but as he says, I ate part of a barrel of sardines. Like, how much is part of a barrel? <laughs> is it like a barrel is a big? That's a lot of sardines. No wonder you don't want to eat any more sardines. Um, there's a kind of um, uh, gentle, gentle uh, philosophy of life that he, that he brings to bear, and um, it it never goes off in a shot. Right? It always comes off with a pat on the back and a wink. Very, very good person is Mark Twain, is my read on him. I agree. I, you know, in Huckleberry Finn, one of the most famous lines of all, um, 
is is when Huck decides that he will not turn in his his companion, known in the book as Nigger Jim. Mm-hmm. Um, and he knows that the, the white culture, the white society he is among going down that raft in the Mississippi um, believes and has their legal right to claim Jim as property. But but Huck, boy, though he is and Jim is a man, um, boy, though he is, he can protect him. And he says, well, then I'll be damned. Yep. And he lets himself go against it. That's that that's that that two way street you're talking about here, that there's there is a willingness to violate what society says. And he knows that it's wrong. I mean, he, he gets it, that society has its rules. And he's not saying that, that, that you can't. And yet, as an individual, he has another another view. Now, on on the uh, on page three hundred eight of the, the the copy that you've provided for us, mm-hmm. Jesse, um, in the third line, uh, talking about what the the bigger boys do, the, the authority figures, uh, with a a squirrel that's actually been damaged by the rifle bullet, Hunter's pride was hurt, mm-hmm. and so they wouldn't allow it the the, the corpse to go into the game bag. It was pride. Well, you know, Thomas Aquinas tells us of the seven deadly sins. The first among them is pride. Pride goeth before the fall. And by that, he meant the fall, you know, uh, to think you can do even though God has said no. So pride is, is, is there. It's with a little a lowercase p, but I think that there is a deep moral issue, not in a Christian way in particular, but a deep moral issue for for Twain. And when he says then in the very next paragraph, this thing about nature. Yes, I was just going to highlight that for you. I was like, well, go ahead, Damn, it's, it's you so read good. it because I, I think that it raises the question about whether or not we have a right to pride. Please. Uh, well, I think we're thinking of the same line. It, it goes like or two lines. Um, there is nothing that furnishes a perfect turkey call except that bone. Another of nature's treacheries, you see. She is full of them. Half the time she doesn't know which she likes best, to betray her child or protect it. And that is, to me, um, it's it's a truth, but also it's... Um, <laughs> he's, he's not 100% aligned with nature, he thinks that there's it's wrong that the turkey leg is being used to to uh, to entrap the turkey. Um, that little irony to him is so obvious. I don't think it's as obvious to his his cousin or his his uncle or the big boys. I agree. And I think that that's that's him in a in a kind of microcosm is that yeah nature is cruel often. It's also beautiful. Um, Nature is can betray itself, but that doesn't mean I have to, does it? <laughs> I, I would I would go. Um, this may be further than you believe the story justifies, but there is a child in this story, and it's not the turkey; mm-hmm. it's the narrator. Yeah. So when it says that half the she, she nature is full of these treacheries. Half the time she doesn't know which she likes best to betray her child or protect it. One way of reading that line is to say 
that the turkey that nature has put into the world has been the instrument of the child that is the narrator's betrayal because he's fooled again and again and again. It's called hunting the deceitful turkey. But in fact, exactly by being fooled by this turkey, nature has created this mechanism in the turkey to betray the child's desire to capture it, but in fact has made the narrator a better person and thereby has protected it. That if we look at it with one more twist, nature is never in fact treacherous. Nature is always doing what is naturally good. And this moral lesson that Twain is giving us is not a particularly Christian moral lesson. It's the kind of moral lesson that the founding fathers of this country who were most, that is the United States, were mostly deists Mm -hmm. would have said, this is nature's law. And in that sense, it is perhaps worth noting that what is now well known, but I don't know if it was well known by Mark Twain, is that Benjamin Franklin, the least belligerent and warlike of any of the founding fathers, is famous, among other things, for having said that we shouldn't have the eagle as our national right. symbol. Right. We should have the majestic wild turkey. Yep. That's a, it's a, I didn't even see that, but you're right. Was uh was was Franklin a vegetarian? Veg- yes, he was. Oh, he discusses he discusses that in his very famous autobiography. It's 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 a uh, it is much more of a national burden that you know Thanksgiving, a very American holiday. Um, we have our own. It's not at the same time. It is always celebrated with uh, that iconic beast, right, or bird, I guess, or fowl. Um, you don't, no one sits down and eats an eagle. <laughs> no. Uh, the no. noble eagle is maybe not as um, – the, the noble eagle, you know, it's on the crest of the German Empire, right? It's, 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 a, it's a symbol throughout the world, but the turkey is um, maybe ignoble looking but noble in spirit. You know, a turkey is ignoble looking walking around. Yeah. But I must say that the 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 domesticated turkeys that we consume now um, with their bread for having huge breasts so they can have so much white meat and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, Those turkeys do not look like wild turkeys. If you want to see a wild turkey, you can look on the label of the, the whiskey that's called wild turkey. There's a nice picture of it on their label. But I have actually had the experience, although I'm not a hunter at all, um, I've had the experience of scaring up a wild turkey while walking in the woods. And in motion, wild turkeys, which are much more slender and well-proportioned than domesticated ones, are gorgeous. And they make an incredible sound as they take off. The rush of air under their wings gives a sense of extraordinary power. They are really quite noble birds and i'm glad that they are at least smart enough to fool a child i i, I wonder um if this plays into it at all it's just a, a an errant thought here um that invitation that he talks about uh, when Omama turkey answers an invitation and finds she has made a mistake in accepting it that, that is just hilarious as it is um so somebody makes the the turkey call right and that's like turkey turkey whatever the turkey call sound is um 
And then the mama turkey says, "Oh, it's not a it's not a fellow uh, turkey that I I can make more eggs with. It's a uh, <laughs> it's a man who's hunting me." <laughs> um, he doesn't find it ignoble in in that he finds it a kind of um, yes, she's deceitful, but she has a, a certain nobility that maybe uh, no one else in this story does. She has the right to protect her babies. That's right. She's the only one who gets dialogue in the whole story. Amazing, then, that there's always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. Thank you.